Hey, everybody, it's Eric Newcomer. You're listening to Newcomer. Just got back a couple days ago from the Cerebral Valley AI Summit that I co-hosted with my friends at Volley in Hayes Valley, the heart of Cerebral Valley, for bringing you a two-parter podcast episode from the conference. First, I'm going to have an interview with Stability AI CEO Ahmad Mustak. I think the audience was definitely on the edge of their seats for this one. Ahmad is a very charismatic speaker. He floated an IPO, which got some news coverage. I can't say I totally understand everything about Stability. He wouldn't give up all their partnerships. I probed on Apple and Amazon. I tried to figure out how much of Stable Diffusion they controlled the open source project that's really helped fire the starting gun here. And Ahmad signed the letter that said we should pause AI development. So really an interesting time to have a conversation with him. I think he'll really enjoy it. And then in the second half of this episode, we've got an interview with General Catalyst Deep Nishar. He was a top investor at SoftBank. He was an executive at LinkedIn and Google. And now he's running General Catalyst Growth Fund. I thought we had a great conversation about how large language models, generative AI, and other developments in artificial intelligence are impacting health investing. I asked him about what it's like to invest many billions of dollars, especially the $100 billion SoftBank Vision Fund. I thought it was a great conversation and give it a listen. Thanks to Samsung Next for being the presenting sponsor to the Cerebral Valley AI Summit. Samsung Next invests in the boldest and most ambitious founders. Tell us about your company. We'd love to meet. Reach out at samsungnext.com. Very excited to be able to talk to Ahmad Masak from Stability AI. Welcome to the stage. Grab a mic, turn it on. This is what you've been all waiting for. All right. Well, it's already come up today. The letter is on everybody's mind. Should we pause AI research for six months? You signed on to it, which like I literally emailed you to make sure it was true because I found it so hard to believe. Why did you sign on to the letter? Well, I saw that Bill Gates had signed up. So <laughs> I was like, <laughs> you might as well. No, look, I mean, I think the letter kind of says basically what OpenAI said in their AGI thing, where they said if the time comes, you should slow down. You should invite regulation and look at runs above a certain size. Like It kind of had that. Plus a few crazy things. So I was like, I'll leave the crazy things to the side and agree with the spirit of the letter because we have no idea what's happening with these models that are coming. Like, it's really going to ramp in six to nine months if the TPU V5s, the H100s, and other come on. Like, I know a 30,000 H100 cluster coming online. That's like eight GPT-3s a day. And we have no idea how these large models work, what actually happens with them, or how to align them because it's a bit crazy. Right. I mean, I was talking to someone from Mid-Journey yesterday who was sort of saying, like, we don't really understand how our models went from, like, six fingers to five. Or, like, is there that level of, like, I have no idea why this has improved that much? Or, I mean, you know, yeah, no, why, I mean, why don't you understand your models? No, we do have an understanding of models at a certain size, but basically you see emergent properties as you scale. And again, as you hyperscale to the models that the letter specifically says, which is GPT-4 and above, of course, nobody knows what GPT-4 level is, but let's just say it's big, right? Then you get these emergent properties, and you know, danger comes in a variety of factors. Like My view on AGI is that we are really boring, and the AGI just won't bother, so it'll be like in her, where it's like, bye, see you later, right? Like, as long as they're pooping. That's, that's a nice view of it. Well, that's my view, but I could be wrong. Right. And, you know, again, if you look at the OpenAI kind of AGI manifesto, it says this could be an existential threat. 
and we're going to treat it like such. I'm like, bollocks, of course you're not. If you did, then you wouldn't be doing it, you know? Like, it could have the effect of overturning our democracy, taking away our freedom. This actually sounds like anti-democratic, anti-American. It's one of those weird things whereby we never believed that it could happen, but now we're seeing this technology go around the world. And so I think that it's reasonable now, because to be honest, nobody's really going to train a model of this size anyway for six months, because you need the new compute to come in, to put this in the public idea of saying, let's have an open discussion about transparency, governance, and sovereignty. Because there is zero... Do you want OpenAI to stop development or just not release anything? No, they should release, so they should do it, but they should become transparent and properly governed. Because what's the governance of OpenAI? Nobody knows. What's the transparency? Completely opaque. They they stop publishing, basically, for GPT-4. Well, I think that's one thing. And again, they said that's a competitive reason. I don't mind that. So, like, for mid-journey, I gave David a grant to kick it off and said, just do what you want. It's a complete grant. I want equity or anything because you're doing amazing stuff, and it's amazing. I have no problem with private models. What I have a problem with is that there is a technology that they themselves say could wipe us out and could overturn society. These are big things. And that's not me saying it. It's them saying it. It's Demis saying it. And there is zero transparency, accountability, or governance there. So I think that there should be, and they themselves say they welcome that. Let's get that ASAP. Let's get that conversation going in the public. Because does anyone here want to build something that could kill us all? (laughs) Hands up. Good. It it feels like there's a comfort level where it's like, oh, if it's only 10% kill us all, and 90% I'm a world historical figure... People are comfortable with that. Well, I mean, look, Sam did the interview on ABC where we got asked the question, if there's a 5% chance that this could kill us all, would you push a button to stop it? It was like, no, I would slow it down. I mean, bollocks, right? I mean, you stop it. But the thing is, nobody knows because this is an unknown unknown, right? You, you must be hard at work, or I hope, I mean, for the sake of open source, working on extracting all the wisdom out of GPT-4 and turning that into something open source, right? Or how do you... Yeah, transfer, transfer learning, yeah. That's how, well, where are you on that? Or like where, oh, look, I mean, where we'll is be, the open source world sort of more broadly? So we have that? our place in the open source world, you know, and we'll be building benchmark models of every modality. So we have language models, chat models, other things coming out. And you can do transfer learning. I think the question is that, actually, if you step back, what happened is a lot of these labs were like AGI, and it was this unobtainable thing. And it stack more layers. So basically, what we have now with our models is that they are really talented grads that occasionally go off their meds. And we fed them with crap. So they're obese as well, you know? So what we've got to do is feed them better stuff, free-range organic, you know? And we've got what to socialize that? What them. What is that? Well, it's better data sets. So we go from trillion to 25 trillion parameter databases. What is the appropriate number of tokens for a language model? What should it know and what should it not know? Because right now what we do is RLHF, you have this whole shoggot thing. Right. Again, I like to think of the disheveled grad that's worked too hard, and then you like, teach it to be a human again, right? Right. Well, like, that's that sort of picture of like the monster, yeah. and then on the outside it's sort of the human reinforced smiley sort of face. Because yeah, again, we feed it junk. We feed it the whole internet. I'm like, let's just put some standards around what data we should feed it, so you have out-of-bounds kind of sample things. Let's have some level of transparency over the large models that could be agentic or could be used for bad purposes in a very effective way. And like my focus is on small adaptable models that are hyper-optimized for the edge, given the nature of my company. Are, are you building any proprietary models? I mean, some people think, oh, Stability AI is working as like a consultancy. Or how do you think about, what is the product that you'll uh, it, sell? It's very simple. Would any of you here send all your internal materials to GPT-4 for your company and your knowledge? No. What you'll need to have is free-range organic models inside your VPC in your cloud, and I'm going to create the benchmark model for every modality, country, and sector. 
and that can be completely Close source open. or open? No, completely open. You need to be, remember this whole thing about interpretable AI, auditable AI? They need to be open. It doesn't mean that you can't use commercially licensed data sets. You can do that for the sectoral variants. And so basically, Anthropic, OpenAI, everyone like that is public data to private models. I'm public models to private data. And so I play on the other side of the firewall. The reason I'm saying this is not because I want to build a GPT-4 level model. I don't think that's necessary because I think multiple models working together are efficient. I signed the letter because I think they themselves say it's a threat. We all know that it's a threat, but we're not having a proper public discussion and demanding the key thing. Like, build private models, make them amazing. I use GPT-4 every day. It's the best therapist, right? But have a look. How, how so? Have you tried talking to it? Get I to do. I, try, I played a, yeah. like, a role-playing game with it. It created yeah. a character. The problem is it then forgot everything. Like I find the memory limits really inhibiting. Well, okay, so it's a really talented grad with occasionally off his meds with a bad memory. We'll fix those things, right? We'll, we'll, we'll balance it out. Well, embedding stores are great. I actually uploaded all my emails to the OpenAI Embeddings API. Again, fantastic product, you know? And so some of my emails may be answered by AI. You don't know. But, but do you think plugins is like the death knell for open source? Or if everything flows through OpenAI, like are you worried no, about again, plugins? You, you can't send your private, regulated, government, other data to black boxes. It just does not work. So I think in the future there will be amazing proprietary models and there will be amazing open models and people will have a hybrid AI experience. The AI on your phone that knows everything about you, you're not going to send that to Microsoft or to Google if Bard ever gets good or anything like that. You will have your own model, right? People are starting to talk more about you know, like local computing or like mm-hmm. even on your phone running yeah. some of these systems. And in particular, some of the stuff you're... You know, are are you in any discussions with Apple or like that seems like a company where people don't know I mean, what's happening look, and there, people they're very privacy focused. There was a press release and an iOS update December first, putting stable diffusion supports on the neural engine. Wasn't that interesting? Right. You know? <laughs> yeah, everyone is reading between the lines, so you're saying do read between the lines. I, I on can't that say anything. Look, basically, <laughs> so my co-founder Joe and I, he set up Imagine Worldwide. It's our charitable arm. We've been deploying tablets to refugee camps around the world with adaptive learning. And in 76 months, we teach literacy and numeracy in one hour a day to kids in refugee camps, right? Using, using basic adaptive learning. So we got the remit to educate all the kids in Malawi. Right. Building special bonds with the World Bank and others. I'm going to build the Young Ladies Illustrated Primer for 100 million kids in Africa in the next few years. We have custom silicon coming to take these language models to the edge. So it's going to teach the kids and learn from the kids. So this is my objective function. 10% of the equity of stability is set aside for that. So this is actually one of the things we haven't talked about publicly yet, but this is the first time we are properly. That is the objective function. So I'm going to be the default open AI on every single chip out there for private data, for personal data. And that's what I built stability to be because then it allows us to continue to be open. And open AI, to be realistic, they Sorry, can... Sorry, can you tease that? I just don't... What, what's the mission? Say it again. Well, my mission is to bring... Uh, so our mission is to build the foundation to activate humanity's potential. My personal mission is to educate every child in the world and give them their own tutor and AI to help them. I want to call it one AI per child, but everyone's like, no, that's a terrible idea. Yeah. So I have to come up with a very own Well, you're, you're, you're raising money from investors. You know, there are reports yeah. that you're out there trying to raise another round. Lightspeed and Co. 2 are already investors. Like, what's the monetization model? Or, you know, like people understand your association with stable diffusion, but I feel like they're still trying to understand sort of the business model. We build models of every single type, right? So the simplest business model is modeling agency, as I like to put it, where we are working with a few partners on really customized models and variants of this. But the big model is to be the default base model provider for every sector, nationality, and others. And 
there are probably 40-odd announcements in the next two months around that. So you go to a company and you say, okay, we have this model we can bring to you, help you implement, and it'll be your own data that you're training, not dumping it onto Microsoft. On-prem, but it's not us. It's a network of about 24 partners that will be announced. So we provide the base models. We simplify it for them. Because these models are like game engines. Since we launched Stable Diffusion, we've only seen five companies in the world actually train their own from scratch that we know of. Because why would you if you have a pre-trained model? And you remember the Wii U to Breath of the Wild? Optimizing these neural net architectures is incredibly valuable. And being the entity that creates default models that everyone can take and extend, open and proprietary versions, not proprietary, commercially licensed versions of those for healthcare, education, others, is a very great place to be. And that's what we're focused on. Because then we never have to compromise on proprietary. I mean, again, I used to be a hedge fund manager. Like, I built this with business model first and cooperative first and a partnership first approach. So, yeah. Yeah, well, given you brought up the hedge fund piece of it, I'm interested in, yeah, you've talked about it some, so I don't want to talk about it for too long, but what inspired you to make the leap to AI? I mean, were you playing in crypto at all for a period of time before uh, AI? So my college roommate, Ben Dello, set up BitMEX and was Britain's youngest billionaire. So I got into crypto in 2011. And so the rumor is like yeah. you, you had acquired a lot of GPUs for no. crypto and you're repurposing. That's false. That's false. I got into AI when my son was diagnosed with autism and everyone told me they were secure treatment. So I built an AI team to do literature review and drug repurposing, focusing on neurotransmitters to ameliorate his symptoms to allow him to have ABA. So I did that and he went to mainstream school. You're amazing. Yeah. So that was when I got into it and I saw the power of it. And I told everyone, look at this. And they're like, who the fuck are you? You're a hedge manager. <laughs> right. So then we did Imagine Worldwide. And then I led a United Nations AI initiative against COVID-19 in 2020, 2021. And a lot of companies promised me a lot of technology and didn't deliver. And I said, eh, I'm going to create the open source version of this for you guys. Because this technology should not be restricted at a base level because it gives you superhuman powers. In terms of stability AI and like what it contributed to stable diffusion, can you talk about that? Like what's sort of the size of the engineering team, funding? Like, yeah, just like the stable diffusion like kicks so much of this off, right? I mean, I said that in my newsletter the other day. Yeah. You, in some ways, were the starting gun to open AI starting to open up a lot of their offerings, right? Do you see it that way? Um, yeah, potentially. I mean, I think this was happening anyway because the technology got good enough to have revenue around it. So my approach was basically to go and fund everything and give grants to everything because it was just so amazing to be able to from create... From money you made as a hedge fund manager? Yeah, pretty much. But, uh, you know, I built a cluster without any funding of 4,800s. You know, it's, it's good to be, have some flexibility. Right. Working with the partners at Amazon and kind of others as well. Amazon in particular were amazing for that. I think that the thing is... We were kind of collaborative, and this is what we continue to do. Like, we just funded RWKV with millions of A100 hours. It's an RNN-based transformer with 14 billion parameters that works. RNNs work, you know? And do just stuff off-piece like that. Sorry, stable sorry, diffusion. but you're on the stable diffusion origin story. Yeah. So it's like money, training. We were funding the entire sector, all the notebooks, everything like that. And then Robin Rombach, University of Heidelberg, one of the authors of Latent Diffusion, which was the precursor, contacted me and said, can you help? I was like, yeah. And How so, did you know them? Well, just because we knew the entire sector. And I was like, latent diffusion is a really promising thing. Let's scale it aggressively. And let's, you know, put engineering towards it. 
as well. So basically, Stable Diffusion was a collaboration between Conviz, where he was a PhD student, Stability, and Robin leads our team at Stability, along with all the other authors of Latent Diffusion, apart from Patrick Esser, who was at Runway ML. So it was a three-way collaboration. Right. And so Stable Diffusion 1 was released like that. And then we were like, this is a bit too good, because it could do, even though we had the safety filter, it could do not safe for work and all sorts of other things. And so I was like, I don't feel comfortable with Stability putting that stuff out. Because, you know, we work with, like, Thorn and a range of others, just like we offer opt-out and other things people don't. So Stable Diffusion on 2 onwards is basically all stability and kind of the team in there. Because You've taken more... Con- well, there, well was was a little, there was a little scuffle in a, where, you know, Runway updated the Stable Diffusion model. You said they're not supposed to and then said it was okay? Or what happened yeah, there? Yeah, pretty much. So, like, we... Confis released 1.4 because it was the PhD student, so Patrick also at Runway is there. And then basically we, in our collaboration agreements, were very arm's length. So like with Lion, we gave them compute and they built the data set and it was amazing work and the open clip and other things. Because I don't want to get in the way of kind of the right. people. But we had an agreement whereby any of the contributors could release it. We thought that meant unanimous. It didn't. <laughs> right. Uh, you want to create like an organization that runs it all together. Yeah. They were sort of like, okay, we're going to release it. Thank you for spending money well, on computer. We, we, we did the kind of exploratorium kind of big event that we did, and then we had an agreement that an in-painting would be released. I was in a meeting with Jensen at NVIDIA, and it got released, and everyone was like, oh, my God, what happened? <laughs> so then there was, we said, that can't be it, because there was an agreement, take it down. But they thought it was from lawyers when our lawyers never contacted. I came out at me and said, let's turn that around. It's fine. You have the authority to release it. It's kind of your decision if you want to release it. I don't think it's the right thing. I don't think we had an agreement. And then we moved on from there because there was this agreement. And I said, okay, we'll take Stable Diffusion 2.0 onwards and we'll run with that. And then Runway have run with Gen 2 and things like that and built amazing things and they've gone proprietary. I mean, do you, it's fine. Do you feel like you fired a starting gun that you regret in any way? I mean, if you're signing this letter, you're worried there's a technology that's out of the control and you were helping to sort of get the ball rolling. I don't know. Do you, do you have any apprehension about that? No, it was coming anyway. Again, I saw the quality of GPT-3 and other things, and this was coming because what happened is that you've moved from research to revenue, and this is fantastic. Like, I don't think there'll be any programmers left in 10 years. Why would you need programming language when you have instant kind of thing? And you look at all the disruption this is causing. This would have accelerated anyway. And did I release a trillion parameter model like some people know? I released a model that fits on an iPhone. And that was our objective function when we were building it. Right. You know, it's just a fact that it was open and it worked and it has made the world more creative. So I think the regulation of bigger models was coming anyway because of H100s and TPU V5s and the scale up, because scaling was not linear. You had this massive drop off. Then we had kind of pipeline parallelism and a whole bunch of other things that allowed us to get more linear. And now with H100s, we can basically scale pretty much linearly. Yeah. Stability right now today, like employee headcount, revenue, anything you can give us just to like understand it. It feels anything. People. I wear 170 people now. We've got another 27 start. No, 160 people, another 27 starting soon. People joining us from all sorts of places. We're going very hard, very aggressively. Like I said, there'll be dozens of announcements in the next month about various things. Unfortunately, I can't give more detail than that. And, uh, I mean, Amazon, you've mentioned Amazon, NVIDIA yeah. at various points. What's the status of your relationships like with those companies? Well, they're super close. Again, we're partners for everyone because we make life easier by creating standardized, stable series models, right? And so we're very appreciative of Amazon. They kind of built our first cluster, kind of got us accelerated, and look forward to deepening that relationship. We touched on this early in the conversation, but, you know, GPT-4 is just looming so large. Like, what's your view 
of what it's capable of, how close other people are to it? Like, what's your assessment of it? I think that it's an incredible feat of engineering. I think it's the thing. OpenAI, the best engineers in the world, and they've done amazing kind of work there. I think that they were just focused and they delivered something that has real value. I mean, like, again, I think all of us probably use Copilot for development now where we can. It was not regulated by that. Like I said, therapist, all these other things. In terms of how far away other people are, like, they had the head start because ultimately they worked with Microsoft and Microsoft had Singularity to create this hyper-optimized cluster that could scale almost EC2 style with all the kind of resonance support. You compare that maybe to the OPT2 logbook, OPT logbook from Meta, where they were like, on the 22nd of December, customer service deleted our cluster. (laughs) (laughs) That was very painful reading, right? Because these things are a bit more like art than science. So I think the other teams are just trying to get their act together, but Google will come through in that they will have that level of model. They're bringing out some walls and dealing with institutional inefficiency. NVIDIA is the one that people don't realize is going fully in on this. In terms of their own multi-models, they're launching their cloud, they're launching foundation models as a service, and they have amazing engineers, and they've been keeping shtum on it effectively. But you can hmm. see, it's coming. Is there anyone you think is sort of asleep at the wheel? Or Yeah, uh, somebody just shouted at Amazon. I couldn't possibly comment. No, look, I think it's difficult because... This is, no one's ever seen anything as fast as this before. The integration, because like, you said crypto before. Like, all I've ever done is lost money in crypto. I've lost two, <laughs> always money, right? It's like, not your keys, I lost my keys, you know. <laughs> Actually, I did come up with a good quote for open source. Not your weights, not your brain. There we go, you guys can take that. So, like, they tried to create That's a good, system. I like, like it, yeah. Please, anyway. please take it. And .ai bubble is the other one coming up. So, you know, what is that? The .ai bubble. As oh, hundreds of billions yeah, yeah. come into here. So, again, journalists. Are we in a bubble? Yeah, if you declare that right now, I think. Of course not. This is bigger than 5G or self driving cars. Those had a hundred billion, a trillion dollars of investment. Six, seven billion dollars has gone into this sector. And it's far more impactful than those. But there, I, mean, I was making this argument on stage earlier that, you know, the big companies basically have an incentive to overpay because they want companies to turn around and spend money on their services. Do you buy that? that that's I, pushing think so. well, I think so. I think at the moment, a lot of the stuff is just POCs and it hasn't really integrated, but then you've seen Microsoft integrate like nothing else. But even then, look, Bing is not top of the app store, fundamentally, because right. it's still a bit crap. Right. You know, like when founders come to me, I say build good products that solve problems. Most of the stuff is still surface level. They're not thinking about the data journey, the user journey, the user experience, you know, models with embedding stores and all these other things. Yeah. And so I think we have to wait for the next wave, but things are useful right now. And I think as they're useful right now, a thousand companies in the next year will spend $10 million each, which is a $10 billion market, just trying to figure out what on earth is going to happen. You're talking about having companies focus. And I yeah. get some of your message that for stability, it's, okay, you know, make it your own. We'll sort of help you make it your own. But like, are there going to be specific use cases to reach out to customers? Or are you going to narrow in some way what your specialty is? No, so our specialty is to build the benchmark models of every modality sector and nation. Isn't that huge? Like, that's huge. It is, but someone's got to do it. And again, with our partner network, it's a really useful, valuable thing. Because you don't want to have a million Unreal Engines, right? Or consoles. I think you want a level of standardization, but you also want to be able to build your own if you want. So like Dream Studio, for example, we put a huge amount of work into the enterprise offering. We just done it. We're about to open source the latest version and just say, let's the community build it, right? Because we were thinking about vertical encryption. You can't do everything. And this is the thing. Everyone wants to do a little bit of everything. Find your niche, find your customer, find your distribution. But with the pace this goes, I think partnering is generally the best way. 
because you can't build a sales team for your demand. Like my inbox is hideous. That's why I needed the embeddings API and to create my own chatbot, right? Like demand. But you think you can partner to outsource sales altogether? Yes. Interesting. Because I'm helping them. Are you going to get acquired or? No. Okay. I'm going to IPO. You're going to go public. I'm going to IPO. I'm going to build one of the biggest, best companies in the world. But that years, you're saying in years or? Faster. Fast? What? The market needs an investment that has every modality, every sector. This year? No. Next year? I can't remember. moment. Within the next three years? Look again, this is the biggest thing of all time and we're just at the start. Yeah. So I'm a public markets investor right. that knows all the public market investors right. and the market needs to have something like that. But it's hard. You have to build a great company first. Then I think you can't just IPO with, you know, crap. You have to get amazing revenue, amazing partners, distribution and an edge. So we've been executing. We're 17 months old, right? It's insane. <laughs> I think we've been executing pretty darn well. But at the same time, we haven't done everything perfectly. Like, hyperscaling is hard. So we'll continue to scale. We'll continue to be in our specific area, which is building benchmark models and supporting the open source and academic communities, right? And hopefully, everyone will be able to build on top of that, and you'll be able to pull cool, awesome stuff. I'm going to open it up after this question, so think about your questions. I mean, AGI. Like, that's sort of the looming in the background of the letter when we opened up the conversation. Like, do you have a view on how close we are to AGI and how... Scared you are or aren't of it? I mean, like I said, we'll never be less than 12 months away, according to everyone. <laughs> you know, like, there's nothing that can change that, right? I have no idea. I think AGI, people have different definitions of it. Like I said, my base thing is that we're just really boring, and AGI won't really care about us. It'll just bugger off like Scarlett Johansson and her, right? Like, you're boring. Then what uh, are you scared of? You're not scared of AGI. You're scared of jobs replacement? Uh, jobs just... replacement. I'm scared of, you know, use of this technology in a proper, aggressive way. And, and I'm not, not scared of AGI. Like, I could be wrong. So I'm not the type of person who's like, I'm 100% right about everything. There is a potential for existential threat. That's not my base condition, but it's a probability. And much of our world is a GERDIC. Like, our science with my son is a GERDIC. A thousand tosses of the coin is the same as a thousand coins cost at once, because our systems can only absorb so much data. The Gutenberg press allowed us to scale by formalizing information, but it lost a lot of the complexity. So our systems standardize us, right? This AI allows us to have infinite context and other things, and that's incredibly powerful, but at the same time, there is an existential threat, and that could take humanity to zero. Hmm. There is an existential threat where our freedom could be completely replaced by entities that could control our minds effectively. But nation states using non-AGI to manipulate people. No, but there's a whole scale here. There's a whole scale of threats that we have to come together as a society to realize could be happening faster than others. If they don't, Fantastic. Right. But if there's ever a time to discuss it, it's now. If you tried to have this discussion six months ago, before ChatGPT or a year ago, it would not be appropriate. Now, right. is now the that time. people can see it, they see the fear. Okay, question. Yeah. Anybody? Bold? Boom. Daniel, can somebody give him a mic? Thanks. This is awesome, incredibly inspiring hearing you talk, especially this fast, wild, live. I've got a question about something earlier that you said, which is, your ambition is to create public models that people can then use with private data, but that doesn't talk about the fact that you train the model that is public on private data. And I'm interested in your thoughts on the Getty lawsuit, particularly that part of the complaint with the two soccer photos, which I thought was really damning. And as you think about going forward as a you know, potentially public company, how worried are you about the plaintiff's bar in the United States and weaknesses that you and companies like yours have around intellectual property rights? 
I mean, man, you know I can't talk about lawsuits publicly, right? <laughs> I can't. But look, I think I can say some things, though, in regards to that. I think that people scrape off a whole bunch of things, and there's legislation that varies around various countries. There's an input argument and an output argument. And we have Mark Lemley from Stanford leading our defense. He wrote the book on fair use. So, you know, we're reasonably confident about that. We are the only company to offer opt-out. And it's not a legal or moral or ethical obligation. I think it's the reasonable and right thing to do. Opt-out, so, like people can crawl in and say, pull this out of your training model? Or? Yes. So we will be making an announcement about the next version of Stable Diffusion, the number of images that have been opted out. It's huge. And I think it's the right thing to do, and I think people should do that. Because governments have come to me and said, should we allow you to crawl everything for anything? And I'm like, no. We should have standards for not crawling, standards for opt-out and other things, because it's the right thing to do. All right, one uh, more question. So first, amazing talk. Thank you. Thank you for being here. You're still not very clear with us on how we're going to make money. <laughs> if the model is out I, there I sort of echo and that. it's open and it's free, I can grab it and run with it. I don't need to pay you anything. I mean, this is why we don't have any open source companies at all. You know, basically people pay for surety, they pay for standards. And even if it's open, you can create variants of that that are auditable, interpretable with commercially licensed data that, again, is fully there. And this is what you need for education, healthcare, regulated sectors, industries, governments, and more. So, you know, just having a model that, stand, that isn't good enough. But there's more to that. But again, I'm a hedge fund manager, so I don't want to give away my arbitrage opportunities. <laughs> You're going to see my business model properly in a year or two when I give away all my secrets. The last question, just like, what advice would you give to the audience here? You know, I mean, this is sort of a set of people who believe in the story that AI is disrupting everything. How should people position themselves for this? Nobody knows which businesses have a moat, right? I think there's a lot of concern. Should I be going to a business with foundational research? Should I be focusing on some product use case? Like, who's safe from disruption? Or what businesses would you tell people to go to build right now? Well, you should go into regulated businesses that will have super normal margins, right? Because you have pricing power. So the question is, do you have pricing power? Because with a 32,000 token context length in GPT-4, you can put a 20,000-word instruction manual. This AI is really good at reading instruction manuals. And people are really bad at reading instruction manuals. So you're saying be a lawyer, be a doctor, be something where like, you're, you're protected by the government. Oh, no, no, no. No, no not those either. <laughs> well, you can run a law firm right. or a doctor or something like that, but entering that, definitely not. Again, it's businesses with pricing power versus businesses that don't, but this transforms information structure flow which is incredibly powerful. And yeah, I think that for those launching companies in this space, you partner with people that can give you scale because you won't be able to build scale in time. I think that's a very important thing. And everyone is looking for an answer because their boards and CEOs are bugging them. So offer a good answer and make them feel comfortable and you'll make loads and loads of money. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming up here. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much. All right. That was our conversation with Stability AI CEO Ahmad Mustaq. Now we move to my conversation, still at the Cerebral Valley AI Summit with General Catalyst investor Deep Nishar. I thought it was a great conversation about how artificial intelligence is impacting health. So give it a listen. Very excited to talk to Deep Nishar. Now he was, you know, leading the 4.6 billion, I guess, you have access to at General Catalyst, leading growth. And not quite the, you know, 100 billion that maybe you had access to during your time at SoftBank. Obviously also an experienced exec at LinkedIn at one time. Yeah, so very excited to talk about sort of the market and where I'm sure we'll touch on the letter and your points of view. I just wanted to start off like, 
I mean, in particular, you spend some time in healthcare, which is, I think, something we haven't talked about as much here in terms of AI. <laughs> I'm curious, like, what you think people should be tracking in terms of, like, generative AI hitting the healthcare space and what you're looking at and what you're excited about there. It's a, it's a great way to start because we haven't talked about it. You know, for the people in the room who are not kids, you may remember that there used to be something called genetic algorithms in AI long before neural nets and DNNs and GNNs became popular. So there is something to be learned even in the way AI is progressing that came from what we know about genomics. There are probably three places where AI can be very helpful and we're already seeing a bunch of companies, you know, we've funded a few of them. The first is protein is like the lifeblood of any cell and it's the workhorse of what happens. We know very little about how proteins work. And of course, with AlphaFold, everyone's now like, you know, thinking about protein. I know, I'm always asking, I, you know, I was doing folding at home back when I was in high school on my laptop, you know, the network. We, feels like we've been working on the protein folding yeah. for like, for ages. For yeah. a really long time. But the thing is, proteins are like really, really tiny and they're moving all the time. So the way you try to figure out the structure of a protein typically is like you take cells, you freeze them, like you do cryo-EM, then you put like X-ray diffraction technologies, you look at shadows, and then you try to figure out what that protein structure is, like pretty arcane and archaic. Two Nobel Prizes have been won on that particular technique. Now with AlphaFold, you can actually figure out how proteins are folding in a dynamic way, and the proteins are the locks, right? And the drug molecule that you create is the key. So the first thing you can do is, you know, in terms of biotech and AIML is we can actually put in and predict how the proteins are going to fold. So once you understand the target, you, you know, Viswa is here, he can tell you all about it later, you can actually figure out the right keys, the molecules that well, can go and bite against that, it. And Veda. Okay. Uh, yeah. So that's one thing. The second thing you can do is you can actually figure out the chemistry that's going to be the best in terms of hitting those targets. A lot of times when we model drugs, there are side effects. And, you know, that's why you, like, read all the things. You go to the pharmacy and they tell you, like, you can get nausea, you can get, you know, diarrhea, etc. The reason that happens is because you're not hitting the target in the appropriate way because the chemical structure is, like, a little bit off. You can do that better. And the third, the most important one, is when you know both the biology of the target and the chemistry, you still have to find the best possible thing that will hit it. And that's, like, the throughput screening. And now with AI and ML, you can actually go through hundreds of thousands of drug candidates and cull it down to something that could be the most promising and hit that target fast. And we saw an example of that. One of my portfolio companies, Veer Bio, they Say found... An, What's it called? Veer Bio, V-I-R. Sorry, Indians V and W sound... No, I just like want to make sure everyone can Google you know, it afterwards. We, 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 I always wanted yeah, to know the company. They came up with an antibody for COVID that worked all the way up to the Delta variant, and that was like 85% effective. So it was more effective than when Paxlovid is today. And the way they came up with that antibody was running like very high throughput AIML screens against antibodies that were available for the SARS-CoV-2 virus, and that worked on COVID. I didn't ask you this in advance. I hope it's not too personal, but like, are there ways where your personal healthcare is better because of some of these companies, or are you able, like, being at the cutting edge of looking at these companies, able to get like some advanced personal healthcare? Or how much is it like available yet, or is it only if you have like? some edge case like disease where it's really useful at the moment? No, a lot of that, I mean, thankfully, I've personally never had to use any of these techniques, but I've had friends, like a very recent case, a friend's mom was in India and with an infection that they couldn't figure out, and she was in very bad shape. There's a company called Carius here that 
takes a blood sample and runs it through 2,000 pathogens and within 14 hours can tell you what your infection might be, which is very different than what happens right now. So what happens right now, if you have an infection, your doctor looks at you and they're like, okay, chances are these four or five things. They'll take a blood sample, they'll send to the lab, and they'll check for those four or five markers. If one of them comes out great, they know what to give you. If it doesn't come out, you're shit out of luck because then they have to send it back. And then again, and if you have something that's a little bit rare or different, you could be in dire straits, especially if you are like immunocompromised, an older person, a younger person, or have some other immunological diseases, that can be a problem. So we were able to help her and you know, get that blood sample from India and That's so amazing. On. In terms of like large language models, I feel like I saw a viral one on Twitter where somebody like their dog was sick, they've been to the vet, they put it into ChatGPT, and then ChatGPT sort of gave them like the most common thing, but you know, then they went to another vet and said, is it this most common thing? And it was, and a previous vet had missed it. Like, I mean, it feels like with animals where we have some comfort with that. Are you seeing the large language models applied to human medicine yet? And yeah, how optimistic are you that they'll be helpful? So, you know, the funny thing, Eric, so I, I had the opportunity to start Google's mobile efforts like in 2004, 2005. So our team built like the first Google search on mobile devices. And I'll tell you, like true story, one of the first emails we got back saying thank you was the following. Uh, father had a newborn. The newborn was born with like, you know, had some issues. The doctor said we have to have surgery right away. The parent was like, that seems like a very drastic surgery on a newborn. We should check it out. They did a Google search. They found some condition, and they asked the doctors, like, could it be this? So Google doctor, this was 2005. Okay. So as long as information is available, there are enough techniques to go figure it out. You don't need large language models for that. The place where large language models and all these search techniques help us is... Medicine is a very empirical science, right? Like doctors, they go through like five years of cramming shit in their head, and then they have to recall it. (laughs) And they have to recall it in the context of what they know. So, you know, I come back with a fever. Let's say I've just been to Africa or India or some places where malaria is very common. If I don't tell my doctor that I was just in a place where tropical diseases are common, they're not going to look for malaria in Palo Alto because they're like, there are no malarial mosquitoes here. So like, they wouldn't even check for that because their empiric evidence doesn't tell them look for that. I need to know enough to like tell them that, hey, I was just... In some ways you're saying the shortage of time with doctors whereas the unlimited time with the LLM, it's like, okay, you could enter everything. The LLM could flag, like here are the key things that you might not have communicated. It's it's a great decision support tool. Right. For them. And by the way, that's a much better co-pilot, I think, than like, you know, coding co-pilot. Like, let engineers do their jobs, but like, doctors can save our lives. So let's give them You're more excited data. about the medical co-pilot. <laughs> yeah, that's exciting. I mean, there's sort of a subtext with the letter here, right? Like, one of the strong arguments against this letter that we've been talking about all day, you know, calling for a halt in research, is that like, what could be lost, right? I mean, there could be, you know, in six months some great medical technique. I'm curious what your view on the letter is, especially as someone thinking about sort of the medical work that's happening. Yeah, I mean, I know one argument that was made here earlier today was like, oh, it's a huge cost to humanity if we stop everything for six months. Bullshit, right? I mean, humanity's gone on for hundreds of thousands of years. We'll go on for a lot longer. We'll die by suicide, not by homicide, because LLMs didn't show up one day. Having said that, I think that... That was a strong argument for stop, because it's gonna, we'll be able to do the six months down the road. You're like, we can stop. You know, progress is never stopped. And I, I don't think, like, the stop part is a red herring. Like, we should all agree and accept that, that people are saying it because what we have built to date 
right, is the first time in history that a massive technological shift is both opaque and stochastic. We don't know how it was built and what it's doing, and it's not deterministic. So, like, if you go to chat GPT and type the exact same prompt like five times in a row, you do not get the same exact response. I, I just want to underline, we're having like the most insider AI conference in the world and a recurring take is we don't actually know like why it produces it. Like that's like a truly that's, amazing... That's a feature, not a bug. <laughs> that's the feature of how neural networks work. Right. right? Because they traverse, you know, themselves and they are assigning the weights by themselves and no one is out there like looking at the weights and saying, okay, you know, how did these things work out? Like these are giant matrices within matrices within matrices. Whoever made the matrix, smart man, right? Or woman, whoever made it. The point is, that's what this letter is all pointing us to. So go back to biotech, how we started the conversation. There's a very fundamental conference in Asilomar, which is not too far away from here, where the key researchers of the day got together and they said, look, we know where this technology can go. Eventually, like, we can change the way, you know, fetuses are designed. Exactly. And they sat down and they came up with a set of rules and they said, look, there are some things that we just shouldn't touch, even if they are available to us, not in the name of science, not in the name of research, because they are fundamentally bad for humanity. All right, I was, I was literally arguing with someone about this last night. Yeah, so the argument is basically... If we didn't do human cloning, then we can stop technological and yet, advancement. And somebody did go and do human cloning, right? Well, I mean, elsewhere. Right? Yes. In, well, elsewhere we is China. I mean, that's right. got like the second largest population in right. the world now as of like March 1st after India. But, you but know. I just don't think there's the same, there's not the same strong moral intuitions with like AI. I mean, people are worried, but like, I feel like human cloning, you pull the random person and they're more worried about it. Like, because is there enough? that's in our face, right? That's in right. our face. Like, we can see it and we don't want like, you know, like, where does it stop? You know, you can say, look, if a baby was going to be born with, like, a loss of hearing, like, would the parent want them to be able to hear? You'd say yes. But then there's a whole set of people who are like, why do you assume that's perfection, et cetera? In our case, like, in the case of AI, it's like, oh, it's software. You know, what happens if it generates, like, some video here or there? And, you know, and then the next thing you know, like, people are creating, like, really bad stuff on it. And there is no way to stop it. Is there any, like, I mean, it's a practical industry. Anything practical you'd say we can do or...? A first step could be, just like if you take a page out of the Biotech SLMR conference, is like, you know, you have, and I'll, I'll miss a few people, but like, let me, you know, a Jeff Dean, a Jan LeCun, an Andre Karpasi, like, collude, you know, up. Greg Brockman, <laughs> not collude, like get together and talk about what's happening. I think the reason they talked about AI labs in that letter, most likely is because that's where the bulk of the research is happening, right? It's not like there are hundreds of thousands of places where interesting applications are being built, but the core fundamental research, like get a Percy, get a Chris Ray, like get folks together to at least just talk about it. And being the one thing I learned being very early at Google, LinkedIn, and now at GC, we, we place a lot of importance on is intentionality of what you build. Okay? Just letting things sort of go in their own way, and then you have bad consequences. You're like, ah, it wasn't in my hands. Like I gave the tools to the world, and the world decided to do a bad thing. But no, things were in your hand. When, when you could have right. done something about it. If you build it, about I it. mean, it sort of came up in the stability conversation. It's like you, you fired the starting gun in a certain way. Google, I mean, you work there, you know Google well. Like getting our more like strategic heads, where are they in this? I mean, there's a lot of people making fun of them relative to Microsoft. Like what's your view on how Google is positioned here? Well, if you just look at the data between Google and OpenAI, 50% of all the important algorithms and models that have come out 
in the last five years have come out from those two places with Google contributing more than OpenAI. And Google, obviously, the Transformer paper itself came out of there. And BERT and, you know, a lot of other things along with it before and after. So you're bullish long-term on Google's position here? I still hold the stock I got in 2003. That's savvy. In terms of, you're, you know, you're someone who's had access to, you know, of billions, money that's unimaginable to me to deploy. I mean, can you invest too much in a good thing? Like, I mean... SoftBank was very bullish, especially with Vision Fund 2 on AI. That doesn't necessarily make it great returns. And, you know, you can just sort of pour more money than sort of technologists can absorb. Or what's, having sort of experienced the Vision Fund, like what lessons do you learn from that pace of capital deployment in the face of promising technology? So, you know, I learned a lesson like 20 plus years ago when I started a company in enterprise infrastructure software, and that was all about like managing APIs before APIs even existed. So that was the right idea, but probably 10 years too soon. I think SoftBank had a similar idea, which is AI is going to change the world. And we started investing in AI companies in 2017, so the previous generation to LLMs. And unfortunately, the pace of investing was such that before you could hit this generation of AI companies, the fund sort of depleted itself. So the same lesson again, which is like, you can have a great idea, but you also have to have it at the right time. And that was one of the challenges. Now, having said that, some of those companies are now actually in the new world doing really well, like Samanova Systems, you know, which has built like very specialized AI chips that has a both hardware and software stack and can run you know, all of these models like very, very efficiently. You know, in Citro, that's in the drug discovery space. YN AI, that's you know, one of the things that no one has talked about here is like we are all building companies in the valley to sell to other companies in the valley. There's a whole world outside of like 94022 zip code where people have a ton of money and they don't know how to deploy any of this stuff. And they are willing to give you a lot of money to buy your software. Right. How do you look at the growth rounds competing against a Google, Microsoft, Amazon, who, you know, like the money's going to flow back to them. How do you value, how do you compete in those deals? Like, has that pushed you to hold back at all? The idea that you're competing against companies that play a different game. The investment business is not a wait and watch business because, you know, that's like timing the market. And I honestly don't know anyone who times the market consistently well all the time. Our job is to make the best possible investment decisions given all the information you have at that point in time. And that might mean like you wait six months until a company matures a bit more, you go early, you go in at the right price, et cetera. So value and valuations have divergions and conversions over periods of time. And in the public markets, I think value and valuations have converged quite a bit. In the private markets, they are a little bit diverged right now. <laughs> right, especially in this space, right? I mean, this is sort of the challenge. I, I feel bad for like software companies that are on the borderline of AI because they get thought too much of software. Their, you know, their multiples are destroyed. Is it just the promise of AI? Or like, do you think AI valuations come down to earth this year? Or you think they're just going to keep... Keep going up. I, I think we should realize one thing, which is like, you know, AI by itself doesn't do anything, right? AI is the fuel that powers an engine that actually, you know, goes in a car that takes you from place A to place B. So the AI that we are talking about has to go in some software that's solving a real problem that is a high enough value that people are willing to give you money for that. So that's how we should be thinking about these companies. Like, no, it's not technology for technology's sake. Like, right. That's interesting. But unless you have the iPhone and the App Store alongside it, like by itself, iOS doesn't do much for you. If somebody has a burning question, I'll throw it to you. Otherwise, I'm going to keep going with the last one. Oh, sure. 
Hey there. What do you think about the role of AI in like personalized health and behavior change, like society-wide? I think AI can be a good aid there, just like any other software. But the fact of the matter is, like when you're talking really about personalized healthcare, most of us know that if we eat right and exercise, unless we have some genetic issues, we should be reasonably healthy, yet we don't do it because it's a lot easier to, you know, eat that really nice chocolate croissant outside as opposed to, like, go for the granola or, you know, whatever. So AI can just keep nudging us. Eventually, we have to take the action. This is why, like, taking a little bit slight tangent, the GLP-1 drugs like Ozempics of the world are all the craze right now, even for non-diabetics, although they are meant for type 2 diabetes. It's an easy way to lose weight, right? Why go to the gym for an hour a day and, like, eat salads when you can eat pancakes all day and just take a pill at the end of the day? Yes. So, so that's less about AI, honestly, and that's about monitoring your biomarkers. And that is actually very key. So you know, you know, if people really want to understand what's going on with their body, say for sugar, having a CGM is great directionally. Because for some people, like eating a mango may really spike your sugar. For other people, it may be watermelon. And you can eat one or the other. But we don't know that generically the doctor will just tell you don't eat any sweets. Well, that's kind of hard, right? Like, it's like the card which says, like, when you're 40, like, don't eat sweets, like, you know, don't have, don't have a spouse and, like, don't have fun, don't drink, and then it's like, is life worth living? <laughs> All right, well, thanks so much. Fun to talk about sort of the actual health implications of these, not just sort of chatting and so super fun. All right. Great. That was our episode. Thanks for listening to my conversations with Ahmad Mustak at Stability AI and Deep Nishar at General Catalyst. I'm Eric Newcomer. This has been Newcomer. Wanted to shout out our conference presenting sponsor, Samsung Next, Oracle and NVIDIA for sponsoring, and of course, Volley, the AI voice games company who hosted the event, and my good friends helped me put on the conference. Follow along on our YouTube channel. It's at Newcomer Pod. Also, you can read the newsletter, subscribe to newsletter at newcomer.co. Thanks to Young Chomsky for the music. Thanks to Tommy Heron for the audio editing. Thanks to my chief of staff, Riley Kinsella, for being all hands on deck. We'll be posting an extra episode this Thursday from the conference. Look for it. Thanks a bunch.